Hey, turn in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 28. This was another thing that I said this morning. I just want to reiterate. I know that there's a lot of storms going on outside of the church, and and there's a lot of things that happen in our world. And I just want to take a minute to kind of help you address some of those things. This is kind of falls under the category of what we would call apologetics, which is just being able to explain why we believe what we believe. I even ministered to a, a young man that was in our youth group in the past that uh, it, he, he put on Facebook, that, and he may be listening right now. If he is, I'd never call his name, but he, he put on Facebook, why would I pray to a God uh, to come in and heal a storm that he created? Okay, and, and that's a valid question. It's a very valid question. Like, why would I ask God to fix something that he started? Why don't he just not start it? <laughs> Which is very, it's valid. So I didn't comment under the section just to vomit my opinion on him like a lot of church people would like to do. Don't do that. I messaged him privately. I reached out to him because obviously he was upset about something that he has a different understanding than I do. And so here's what I said. I explained to him that in 1 Kings chapter 15, Elijah was in a cave. And the Bible says that... that Elijah was in the cave and a, and a great wind came by, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then the Bible says that there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then the Bible says that Elijah heard a whisper and the Lord was in the whisper. So there are things that happen on this earth, fire and wind, that the Lord is not involved in. I'm telling you right now, the Lord is not in the rapist. The Lord is not in the murderer. The Lord is not in the thief. That's why they're willing to do those things because they don't have God inside of them. We are a fallen people in a fallen world. But when we come together and we unite in the name of Jesus, we give dominion back to the one that deserved it to begin with. We ask him to intervene and bring reason to even our worst of seasons. And that's how you minister to that is that you love people where they are and you share the truth with them in love to help them understand what we're supposed to know. Mark chapter 1, verse 28, the Bible says, immediately the fame of Jesus spread throughout all the region around Galilee. I want you to notice that in this this scripture that Jesus didn't spread his fame. People spread his fame. The people that were influenced by the ministry of Jesus were the ones that went out and spread his fame. John the Baptist tells us how we're supposed to spread the fame of Jesus. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. I have to be willing to get uncomfortable so that somebody else will meet the comforter. It's up to me to get outside of my comfort zone so that they can experience the comfort of the one who wants to come alongside them and walk out this life. And his name is the Holy Spirit. He is the person of God in the New Testament. But if I'm going to help someone do that, it's going to get me a little uncomfortable at times. I'm not going to be able to just remain comfortable in my life. Because if I stay comfortable, then why do I need a comforter? I don't. If I just stay where I am and I stay seated in the safety of my seat, then why do I need the Spirit to help me do something? He doesn't need to help me sit where I am. He needs to help me do things that I didn't think I could do. That way, when I get finished with them, the only person that gets glory for it is Him. You understand what I'm saying? He must increase and I must decrease. 
Why do we exist as a fellowship? I spent a week on this. And this is kind of sad because it's like eight words that I came up with in a week of prayer. God, why does New Hope Fellowship exist? Why did you take First Assembly of God and a group full of hippies that got saved in a house, unite them together and put them in Eunice and call it New Hope Fellowship? How cool was that, by the way? But why did you do that? Why did you give me a vision two and a half years ago to bring me to this place? Why are we here? Why do we exist? Why do we have land on 190? And this is what I came up with. We exist to meet people and grow closer to God together. Pastor Weston says it at the beginning of the announcement videos every week. I try to say it at least once a week, sometimes twice. You'll hear me say it on Wednesday night. That is our purpose. It's our vision statement. We exist to meet people and grow closer to God together. And guess what? The pastors of this church are not going to meet people and grow closer together with the people in the community outside of this church. We will never meet the people that you meet on a daily basis. We will never be able to go into your workplace. We will never sit at the same table that you do after service on Sunday. We will never bump shoulders or, 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 or rub, rub lives beside the people that you will rub lives beside. And it wasn't Jesus that spread his fame. It was the people that were affected by the ministry of Jesus that refused to keep it to himself that made Jesus famous. And that's why that's our mission statement. To meet people and grow closer to God together. That is what we are about. Why? Who cares? Who cares if we meet people and grow closer to God together? Because I don't want to die in these seats. I want to build the kingdom. I want to see people passionately plugged into pursuing God's purpose for more people. I want to see others experience the life-changing power of the resurrection just like I have. And if I really believe that I can experience that power, then why in the world would I keep it to myself? So when I was a child, my parents divorced when I was two years old. I got to see my daddy just about every other day, or I think maybe we did a week and then a week and back and forth. And, and my dad lived in the same town, so I didn't have like daddy-mommy issues. I didn't have separation anxiety or anything like that. In fact, what happened to me is my dad remarried a really great woman, and my mother remarried an incredible man, and I got to end up living off of two family incomes. So I was kind of a spoiled brat. It was great. I loved it. Didn't really prepare me much for the future, but I had a good time while I had it. As a child, there was a, a period of time where my mother was a 21-year-old single mother. And uh, if you've ever seen Gabriel running around, apparently our personalities were a lot alike. So she says, she tells these stories about me. I mean, she obviously tells stories about Kelsey and my other little brother, Caleb. But it always seems like the, the worst stories have my name involved in them. And so she's in a grocery. Apparently, I never met a stranger, and I asked a lot of questions. In fact, I responded to the answers of her questions with another question. That was just my personality. I asked why more than I listened to what. <laughs> but apparently we were in a grocery store one day and there was a man standing behind me and his belly was built about like my Papa Jerry. No offense, Papa, I love you. But he was standing behind me and my aunt was just about to have one of my cousins. I can't remember if it was Kristen or Lauren, but... But this man's belly behind me looked very similar to the belly that my aunt had. 
So at about three years old, my mother's checking out of the grocery store, and I don't know why she didn't have me strapped down tight in the buggy, but I was standing behind her, and she's doing the groceries, the deal, you know, single mother in the store by herself. And I, at three years old, and I had curly long hair, except for it was brown instead of white like Gabriel's, I turned around to the man that had a belly like my aunt, and I poked him right in the belly button, and I said, hey, you got a baby in there? And my mother's like, oh, what is, I'm so sorry. His aunt's pregnant, and he obviously thinks that you are too. No, I don't know. I'm so sorry that happened. And so my mom, you know, I can see this happening. Like, Chris, you can't do that. Why? Because you can't tell people, you don't poke people in the belly and ask them if they're pregnant. Why not? I did it to aunt, whatever. I needed to understand why, right? I needed to, to understand the why behind the what, and, and all too often, we as the children of God, we are the same as the children of our parents. We can't just hear the explanation. We have to understand it for ourselves. And sometimes the answer to your question only lies in personal experience. If you haven't experienced it for yourself, then you may or may not understand it in the same way. I want to encourage you, that's not wisdom, because God will teach you a lot of lessons if that's how you want to learn, but wisdom is applying the right thing to that situation before you have to learn it by experience, and that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. In uh, John chapter 20, we see this story laid out where we, we talked last week about this, this lady named Mary Magdalene who was possessed by demons. And we understand that as she began to follow Jesus Christ, not just for a moment, but for the mileage of his ministry, he began to use her significantly. And she was formerly possessed by demons, but then she became possessed by purpose. Her purpose was the gospel. Her purpose was to reach the lost, to share the experience of the life-changing power of the resurrection. So she stayed with Jesus, and therefore she was used by Jesus not to be possessed by demons any longer, but to be possessed by the power and the purposes of God that would make her the world's first evangelist because she is the one. It was not Peter who was the first, although he did stand on the day of Pentecost and speak to the 3,000. It was Mary Magdalene that went and evangelized the resurrection of the empty tomb to Peter and John at the house. In John chapter 20, I may have given Peter and John a bad reputation last week because I said that the Bible says that they looked into the empty tomb, they saw that it was empty, they remembered the words of Jesus, and they believed, and they went home, which is what we do. We see the resurrection power of the cross. We believe it for ourselves. We remember what's in his word. It impacts us significantly, and we take it, we put it in our pocket, and we go home and sit on it. And I thank the, all the people that sat in their recliner instead of their couch last week because I said, don't go home and sit on your couch and forget what the Lord said. 
if you lay down and got vertical with the Lord, horizontal before the Lord for a little while, that's okay. If you stood up and went vertical in your sleep, that's even more impressive. But if you went horizontal before the Lord, the point is, is don't just hear the word, but be doers of the word. Take it home, share it with other people and apply it not only to your life, but the lives of the people that you have influence with. And last week, I really preached against Peter and John. But let me give you a different spin, another possibility that took place. It's possible that when Peter and John remembered the words of Jesus and they believed that they didn't need to see it to believe it. They remembered the words of Jesus and they believed. So they didn't have to stick around and wait any longer. Now Mary Magdalene stuck around and waited to see what she believed So it was revealed to her, and she got to be the first one to share it. But Peter and John went back to the house, and we pick up in this story of them being back to the house. But here's what happens in verse 26. As I talk to you about the topic today, John chapter 26, of doubting my doubt. I want to doubt my doubt because I'm not going to give doubt more dominion than it deserves. We, th- we see this story of a man named Thomas in verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin. I like the King James Version because it tells us the Greek name of the twin was Didymus. If you're having a son anytime soon or you're a grandparent of a, a, a child that's having a son up soon, offer them the name Didymus. Nobody's using it. It's very creative. Um, it, it can be like the twin of Thomas, the one that doubted but got to stick his hand in Jesus' stomach. It could be a really cool reference for later in life. Didymus is the name that you need to go with. He was one of the twelve, but he was not with them when Jesus came. See, I don't know why Thomas wasn't with them. I'm going to give you some reasons that may have caused his doubt today, but... All I can tell you is this, and you can kind of write this down or, or just do your best to remember it, that because Thomas wasn't where he was supposed to be, Thomas didn't see what he was supposed to see. See, Thomas should have been in the room with the other disciples and apostles when Mary Magdalene came in and told them that Jesus was alive. And just a few minutes later, Jesus came through a locked door and revealed himself as being alive. Thomas should have been in that place. But just like the King David, who decided to be on a balcony outside of his bedroom and watch a woman take a bath instead of being in the battlefield with his men where he belonged. Because he was not where he was supposed to be. He did not see what he was supposed to see. You can cover most of your problems just by being in the right place. You can cover most of your consequences just by doing the right thing. But because Thomas was not, he did not. Verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. Ha ha, you missed it. That is not a good witnessing strategy, just for the record. We've seen the Lord. So Thomas said to them, almost in a retaliation, you can almost hear the defense in his voice. Good for you. Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger in the print of those nails, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It's almost like he was fleecing the Lord like Gideon. It's almost like he was calling the Spirit of God to the carpet. 
It was almost like he was asking for it. But if you listen hard enough to the liturgical tone in this literary tone in this scripture, you can almost hear Thomas doubting his doubt. You can almost hear him, as maybe you've done before, I know I have. You're really saying something because you really know what you believe, but you want Jesus to prove it to you. You, you're, you're not really going to do what you say you're going to do, but you're like playing this game with God. Like, if you're real, then prove it. Okay, so I took my wife when we first, I mean, like seriously, like the second day that we were going to begin to try to follow Jesus. And I said, if you can trust God to trust me, just give me one more chance. And, and we went to a service and we went to like an excessively emotional out of order service. Like there was things going on in that service that if it happened in our service, it would be put back into order immediately. I mean, there's people kicking off their shoes, sprinting around, people doing backflips in the altar. Some brother diving in the baptismal, ain't no preacher in there. I mean, just crazy stuff happening. Stuff like if you started doing it, I would trip you and blame it on the Holy Ghost, okay? I'm, like this kind of church is what we walked into, but I understood that they had a passion with a purpose that I did not have for whatever reason. And so I take my wife in there, and the pastor's laying hands on everybody, and he's got some kind of power puncher in the palm of his hands, because every time he lays hands on somebody, they poof, and they lay back on the ground. And I understand that to be the same principle that Jesus said when they came to arrest him. And he said, I am he. And 700 people drew back and fell to the ground in his presence. But we didn't understand that at that time. We were just like, man, somebody telling them to do that? Like, whoo, that looked like it hurt. Because that's concrete underneath that little thin layer of carpet. And that brother hit the ground hard. And so my wife's watching this. And, and she's like, all right, Lord, if you're in this, show me. Like, prove it. Guess what? <laughs> that pastor's wife laid hands on her. And I don't know what happened because I was standing beside her going, God, I, I, I want to feel you. I want to feel you. And God said, it ain't about feeling. It's about believing. When you put your faith in me, your feeling will follow. But I wanted my faith to follow my feelings. God wanted my feelings and my obedience to follow my faith. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write this down. If you're not, write it down anyways. Number one, doubt can be caused by disobedience. See, disobedience is as the sin of divination. What does that mean? It means when you deliberately disobey Jesus, you may as well worship the devil. That's strong, I know. But I didn't say it. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. See, when Saul was anointed king, even though he was a mighty man, when the word of God came to him and told him to do something specific and he did not do it, he intentionally rebelled against the word of God. The prophet told him, obedience is better than sacrifice because disobedience is as the sin of divination. Disobedience is the same as devil worship. Which is a very intense statement to make, but here's the deal. Is that we can't run away from God in disobedience and then blame him for the walls that we run into. We can't run away from God in disobedience and blame him for the pits that we fall into. It would be like I would go to the gym, and even though I, I don't eat right at all, but let's just pretend that I did. 
I, I work out so I can eat what I want to. Yay, that's somebody. It's going to catch up with me. It already has. I was like, somebody's sticking a needle in me at night and inflating the side of my hip. I don't know what's going on. Megan's playing tricks on me, but it's catching up. But let's just say that you got on this regimen, you know, it's a resolution. And January 1st, I'm going to work out and eat right. And it lasted until Valentine's Day. All them chocolates, I don't understand. I can't do it. Why do we have Valentine's Day right after New Year's resolutions? Don't make any sense. Buy something besides chocolate. Buy like the non-edible stuff that looks pretty. Plastic, chew on it. Anyways, it would be like you beginning a, a workout regimen and you would eat right and you would live right and you would exercise properly and you go to the gym and you see the results. You stand on the stale, scale or you measure your waist and everything is beginning to get in its proper place. That's what happens when you're obedient to the word of God. You give your life to Jesus, you begin to eat right, you begin, you begin to feed yourself with the right things, surround yourself with the right people, live in the right atmospheres, you begin to do the right things, your eyes become the light of the body, and you're doing well. And, and so when you compare yourself to the scale, everything lines up and it looks good, but then just like that workout thing, Valentine's Day hits, the chocolate things with the you punch a hole in them and stuff just starts running out and you're like, what is that? Oh my gosh, it's gotta be from heaven. And so you, you get that thing, right? And, and you stop going to the gym as much and you stop exercising, you stop living with the discipline that you were living with before and then you go to the gym and you haven't worked out, you haven't exercised, you haven't eaten right and you step on the scale and you look at it and you're like, the devil is a lie! Because that thing is telling you something that you don't want to see. But it's not the devil's fault that you hadn't been obedient to something that God placed on you. You can't blame the scale for telling you the truth. You understand what I'm saying? So when you take the measure of God's word and it doesn't tell you what you want to hear or what you want to see, you can't get mad at Jesus for being honest. And you can't begin to doubt him. Because of the things that are happening in your life because of your disobedience. Number two, doubt could be caused by desire. For our purposes, it's going to be like a misplaced desire. Like life in general, why is this happening? I expected something else. I'll compare it to this really exciting ministry position. That Megan and I were looking forward to taking on. And, and then we took that position. And we were really excited about it. But then just within a few months, it didn't live up to the expectations that we had for it. And so we didn't begin to doubt God. But we began to doubt, Lord, is this really where you wanted us to go? Because our desire, our expectation for that situation didn't match the experience of our reality. And so when we do that, we begin to doubt maybe the call of God, maybe the place of God, the timing of God. Just because it doesn't live up to what we expected, we begin to doubt whether God is really in it or not. When that's exactly where God wanted us. Exactly when God wanted us there. Number three, doubt causes is caused by disappointment. See, the difference between desire and disappointment for our purposes is desire is like an expectation of life. 
So it would be like us saying, why, why this? Why this? Where disappointment is a little bit more personal. It's like, why me? Or, or why not me? Why them? Why did they get promoted when I've been praying? Why didn't I get to be put on that roster when I performed so well? Maybe Jesus understands that the promotion is going to be more damaging to you than you learning how to some celebrate somebody else that goes before you. I've said this to some, some people as I'm learning it because this is difficult. Because I believe that God has some, some, some large dreams and visions inside of me. And, and at times I see other people achieving those dreams and those visions. And I have to make myself celebrate those other people. Why? Because if you don't learn how to celebrate others, then God will never be able to promote you. And I've even shared this with some people that really, really deal with this, that it's really hard for them, that they're really kind of absorbed with like their own glory, and they even blame God for never getting a break in life. And what I tell, I've told some of them before, whenever they're really struggling with this, is that nobody has time to celebrate you because you're too busy celebrating yourself. When Jesus didn't say celebrate, he said submit. Because submission is more beautiful than self-glorification. He must increase and I must decrease. What you will find is when you learn how to celebrate others for their promotion, then and only then can Jesus promote you to the platform that he has for you. We can't be disappointed with things that don't or do happen to us or for us. Even though it's personal. We can't say, why me? But we can't ask. We can't ask God to show up and do something, just like Thomas did. But here's what I want to share with you this morning, that when you do that, you better be careful. Because you may end up like Peter in the middle of the night. When the disciples looked out of the boat... They spoke in this South African tone mentioned by a man named Andre Von Zeele because he preached this story in 2006 at uh, Broadmoor Assembly of God in Shreveport. And this is the only tone that I can hear this story in. And Andre Von Zeele called me a couple of weeks ago. He's going to be here at the end of June, and I'm excited about that. And I hope he doesn't preach this story because I'm going to ruin it for you. But he said that disciples looked out of the boat and they said, it's a ghost walking across the water. And I, that's all I hear every time I think of this story. But the disciples looked and they saw what they thought to be a ghost. And he was coming towards them. But then Jesus said it was not a ghost, that it's, it's him. And then Peter, you know, Peter's always got something to say. I'm a lot like that dude was, so I try to learn from his mistakes. But <laughs> he looked out and he's like, hey, if it's really you, why don't you tell me to come? And Jesus says, okay, come to me. Peter's like, yeah, he ain't go, what? He's, what well, he's, come, okay, hey, y'all, who wants to go? 
I'm going to get out this boat. I am too. Don't y'all hold me back. Don't y'all hold me back. I'm going to get out. I'm going to get out this boat. Jesus said, come. There ain't no ghost. This is Jesus. I'm going to get out. And so eventually he gets out of the water. Why? Because he asked for it. But then he got out of the water and he began to take his eyes off Jesus. He gets a really bad rap for this part because he took his eyes off Jesus. He begins to drown. But then he looks back up and Jesus saves him. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. That's the moral of the story is don't take your eyes off Jesus. Be where you're supposed to be and do what you're supposed to do. And you'll never doubt. Even when you do doubt, you can begin to doubt your doubt. And you won't be disappointed. You won't be confused by misplaced desires. And you won't be disobedient. Watch this. 26, verse 26 of John chapter 20. The Bible says, And after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas was with them. Let me ask you something. Who is your Thomas? Who is it that if you will just be consistent in your walk with Jesus, there's an eight-day time period that at the end of the eight days, Thomas is going to be where he's supposed to be because you were where you were supposed to be. Because you lived out this life. It may be more like eight years, but I'm telling you, there's a Thomas watching you today that if you will just walk faithfully for the eight-day representation in this passage, then Thomas will begin to watch you, keep an eye on you, and eventually that which he dared God to do will happen in his life. Because Thomas was in the room with them. Jesus came, the door being shut, and stood in the midst, in the midst, and said, peace to you. Because the pressure of life can, all be, can always be replaced with the peace of God. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger in here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. I want you to notice the present progressive in believing. It wasn't just believe. It doesn't just say, do not disbelieve, but believe. It says, believing. That you would not just believe for a moment, but that you would continue believing. That is the original text of this passage. That that word was a present progressive verb that wasn't just mentioned for a moment, but it influenced the mileage that followed the moment because Jesus has a ministry on the other side of the mileage that Thomas is going to need to believe and believe again and again and again. Because when Thomas is walking west to his martyrdom, he's going to need to remember the moment that he put his hand in Jesus' side. He's going to remember the moment that he had when Jesus responded to his question. He's going to remember the moment when Jesus stepped through a locked door in his life and revealed himself anyway. He didn't just believe, but he will continue believing. Again, I can't help but use my son as an example here. I figure if God didn't want me to use my children in my messages, he wouldn't have given us so many. <laughs> it's all God's fault. It had nothing to do with my discipline. It was all Jesus. He was, every time I looked up, there's a baby in there. All right, so Gabriel's in the back room, and sometimes I just like to listen to the conversations that my children and their mother have. I mean, most of the time I intervene, but sometimes it's just humorous. It's just amusing. I think Camry was asleep or something was happening, and they were in this little hallway, or it should have been right beside Camry. He probably woke her up because Gabriel's kind of loud. Like, Gabriel doesn't have, like, normal baby cry. You know, like, baby Taya cry. That's like, yeah. Like, he didn't, do, he didn't do that. It was never, uh, it's like, oh, fix him a bottle, hold him, rock him back into the peace of the Lord. No, Gabriel woke up at three months old, four months old. I'm serious. This is not an exaggeration. You ask my wife. 
I was like, what child makes that sound? Why my son? What did you do to birth this child? This is full circle back around, and I know I did not make that. He does not get his loud talking from me. Had to be your mama's side. She's a loud lady. She's really not. She's like the sweetest, soft-spoken lady ever. But Gabriel's just a really loud dude. So Megan's like, Gabriel whispered. He's like, okay, yeah. And then like two steps later, he's like, mama. And she's like, oh, Gabriel, no. Whisper. He's like, I did. I whispered. I did. He's like, no, do it again. Okay. Like that? Yeah, no, just stop it. But isn't that what we do? When it comes to salvation, and I don't know if it's a heretical doctrine or what the issue is. Maybe God uses that because he's sovereign enough to make it happen. But so often... God says, believe. And we say, we did. I did that. And look where I am now. My disobedience from pulling away from that because I only believed it for a moment and I didn't walk out and go in it and abide in it and stay in it. Now I'm in the same place that I was before. Actually, I'm worse off. I did believe that, but my desire, my expectation of what that was supposed to mean because that TV preacher on television told me that if I just sent him $1,000, I'd get my miracle. My expectation is not lining up with my experience. I did that. I'm disappointed and I'm hurt because what I expected or what I wanted doesn't line up with what's happening in life, and I did that. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I didn't ask you to just do it. I asked you to continue in it. I'm not asking you to just believe this one time. You need to believe and continue believing again and again and again because Jesus didn't show up to show off. Because if Jesus just wanted to show off, then he would have did it like I'd have done it. I'm telling you right now, I got crucified. I'm not showing up to Mary Magdalene. I'm going to Pilate's house. How do you like me now? Yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to show up at that brother's home. I'm going to walk into the Pharisees' courts. I'm back. From out of space. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to come. I'm going to show off. Somebody's going to wish they wouldn't have. That's what's going to happen if I should. But that's not what Jesus did because he's gracious and he's gentle. Jesus went to his mother. He said, it's okay. I did what I said I was going to do. Jesus went to the, the prostitute and the demon possessed and said, hey, you remember how I delivered you that one time? I'm going to do it more than once. Jesus went to the disciples, to Peter. He told Mary Magdalene, go to the disciples and Peter. Because he was there when Peter denied him three times to a little girl. He said, go, go show myself to Thomas. Because Jesus only revealed himself to the people that needed him to reveal himself. And Jesus doesn't just show out. He stands in. He goes through even the doors that we try to use to lock him out. And he comes in anyways. He answered Thomas's prayer. Because perhaps Thomas's prayer was based off of none of those as Pastor John comes. Perhaps Thomas's prayer was based off the most overwhelming of all. Perhaps Thomas's doubt was caused by devastation 
the man that he had subjected and submitted his entire life to is dead. The man that had convinced him to leave his family, the future that he had planned, the finances that he had available, he was all in to this man from Nazareth who said he was the king of the Jews and the son of God. And that man is now dead. There's a stone in a sepulcher that's sealed and guarded by soldiers. But there were some people praying in the house. And Thomas, because of the prayers of the disciples, because of the ones who had seen him, In chapter 20 of verse 28, Thomas answered to the Lord and said to him, My Lord, my God. Jesus didn't leave him in his devastation. Thomas believed again because for the first time in history, an individual realized that the wounds of Jesus were greater than the wounds of this life. That the wounds of Jesus were eternal, but the wounds of this life are only temporary. Thomas identified with pain, but he didn't live in it. He didn't stay in it. He let the same resurrection power that Mary experienced, that Peter, John, and all the other disciples experienced come into his devastation and give it a new direction. He let God resurrect the dead in him and the resurrection of Jesus Christ's wounds became the battle cry of a dysfunctional life made divine. What's important to you may seem dead today, but I'm telling you, there is a resurrection around the corner. It may seem locked and lost in a tomb of despair on Friday, but there is a resurrection coming on Sunday because the stone, it can shake again and the angel can come and declare again that Jesus Christ is alive and he is available for you and for me. See, Jesus is more interested in your future than he is in your failure. He is more interested in your potential than he is in your past. See the hole in his hands eight days later than what you were supposed to because the wounds of Jesus are still greater than the wounds of this life. And I'm going to doubt my doubt like Thomas did because I understand that Jesus can take my disobedience and turn it into divine destiny. He can take my misplaced desire and turn it into divine destiny. He can take my greatest personal disappointment and turn it into divine destiny. He can take the most devastating situation that I have ever experienced and resurrect it into divine destiny. See, I want you to understand today 
that if Jesus could take a mother who lost her son and use her to prepare meals to minister to others who have lost their loved ones. If Jesus could take a man to the end of his rope just to grab that rope and lift him, his bride, and his babies higher than they would have ever lifted before. If Jesus could take the daughter of a man who may not have been around as much as he wanted to and use her to minister to hundreds of young women and young girls and a prophetic thousands that she will minister to. If Jesus can take the grandson of a Pentecostal preacher down to the second generation and use him in the ministry, resurrecting devastation to divine destiny is what Jesus is about. See, if Jesus could take a sister who was never more than picked on and he could be a friend that sticks closer than the brother that she never had. If Jesus could take a displaced son lost in a sea of siblings and partner him beside a bride that would need his strength and her brokenness. If Jesus could take a snot-nosed, silver-spooned, spoiled little boy who up till 21 years old fought all of his battles for him and put him on a platform to minister the gospel, then why can't he do it for you? I want you to stand with me this morning. And I don't want to play games because we don't have time. I'm not going to give you five more things to try to convince you to get out of your seat and come to the altar. But I'm going to say this. If 15 children would run up to the altar in excitement to be prayed over, then why is it so hard for us when we have an even better understanding of who he is and what he can do? Today, if you need to doubt your doubt, I'm talking to you. More importantly, Jesus is using this message from his word to do the same thing for you that it did for Thomas. Jesus is asking you, just like he did Thomas, put your faith back in me and believe again. And again, and again.